Thanks for tuning into Behind the Scene, a conversation dedicated to uncovering our biases and how to navigate them in a constructive way. Hi, I'm Mark Bauer. And I am Brandon Polk. And welcome to episode two of Behind the Scene, a weekly conversation focused on understanding the biases that are at the root of society's racial tensions. If you remember from last episode, we talked about what is at the root of misunderstandings and the snap judgments we make about people based entirely on the information we were provided about their outward identities. Those outward identities never tell the full story about who that person is behind the scene. And when we're confronted with those misunderstandings, it creates tension between what we think we know and what actually is. And so when a whole bunch of people live together who share a bunch of those commonalities related to economic status, religion, and ethnicity, they develop social norms as general guidelines for living together in a geographically defined area. And these norms, they can exist on all kinds of scales. They can be national, state, city, and even drilled down to your neighborhood. If you're on an escalator in a big city, you better be sure to stand to the right to make room for people to pass on the left. And if you're driving through any small town in America, it's likely normal to wave at strangers as you pass by. And if you're a part of that normative group, you might even be blind to it until someone violates those norms. My dad, who's from a small town in South Dakota, whenever he's visited DC, he tries to engage with people on the metro and you can observe just the discomfort that people have because that's not what people normally tend to do on the metro. And so on the flip side, when you're in a place where you're not accustomed to those norms, you encounter all kinds of situations that can kind of make you feel out of place. And so what happens when a bunch of people from the same kind of background who all kind of share the same context about the world start making the rules for everyone else to live by? Those rules, that structure might be skewed toward the power dynamic in favor of those in the majority. In the United States, we might call that whiteness. And Brandon, this is different from the whiteness we might think of regarding the color of our skin. Um, because that's automatically where I go to when I think of whiteness. I, I think of the, the color of my skin, right? I think of it in terms of just my ethnicity. So uh, I think it's interesting, Anne Hathaway this last week, she kind of stepped into the conversation of whiteness when she posted uh, an Instagram uh, post remembering, memorializing Nia Wilson, who was killed, um, approached just brutally, like out of nowhere. Uh, and so I'm going to read that post real quick and just use that as kind of a launching into point. But she says, white people, including me, including you, must take into the marrow of our privileged bones the truth that all black people fear for their lives daily in America and have done so for generations. White people do not have equivalents for this fear of violence. Given those givens, we must ask ourselves, our white selves, how decent we really are, not in our intent, but in our actions, in our lack of actions. And that's kind of where she ends it. So aside from kind of the generalizations in the post that kind of make me cringe as a journalist, is anything she said there wrong? Yeah, it's just a really interesting post. Um, you know, and especially for me, thinking about the power of what it means for someone who is white to speak about this matter or to speak about privilege, to talk about whiteness to other white people. And the other thing that's really interesting is that she, without any foreknowledge, of course, because she is not black, addresses the plight of black people with a generalization using the word all, as in all black people uh, have this 
sense of fear of violence. Uh, the question that you ask, is any of it true? I think most of what she's saying is definitely true. I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with how she's saying it, but if I really, as a, as a black person, if I really thought about it, I would say I've always had this intrinsic fear of violence. Uh, I've always had this sense that maybe something could happen to me. I wouldn't call it like a retrograde fear, like it's a 10 out of 10 or something all the time. Yeah. But I am going through something where I'm constantly aware of what my body's doing. I'm constantly aware of my surroundings. I'm constantly aware of who I'm with and what I say to them for fear of what retaliation could look like, for fear of losing opportunities, for fear of losing body parts, for fear of being approached in a way that is threatening to my body or to my mind. And I, uh, I think what she's saying is very real that perhaps all black people go through a level of, of that. Even as a black person, I would say that not all black people are aware that they're going through it. All white people, too. I wonder, based on this statement, if all white people are on some level naive about it because it's not the experience that you have growing up. You don't have to think about yeah. what it means to be white. You don't have to consider what it means to worry about bodily harm as a result of the history of this country and other and not just slavery but the civil rights movement and things like that and if you're looking at Anne Hathaway's post and her comment around Nia and her tragic death that we talk about police brutality of course all the time or Ferguson or all these different types of events uh, that have triggered violence that there there is an innate trigger for black people there isn't necessarily an innate one for white people that's yeah. just built into the fabric of the history of the country as you're talking about the revolution or something like that some kind of world 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 war where it was white people against white people then you were worried but other than that you know it wasn't necessarily built into us to the socialization fabric of the country that somehow you would be ridiculed or mocked because of the color of your skin yeah so and actually i think you bring up a good point like that's not something that necessarily i don't think white people have to deal with on a daily basis right and that's one of the um the privileges of being in the normative group in a culture right is you know here's an example like you you're not aware of it right when you exist in it unless you are introspective and think about it and think about other people's experiences you're not really aware of your normative uh, place in in that society so like when i this is kind of embarrassing but i only recently discovered that like i'm allergic to pineapple and kiwi and i've grown up all my life eating those things and it, my mouth it's a shame yeah it's a shame it, it's a shame they're delicious fruits and so i just was like man these make my mouth itch uh but i just thought that was the normal thing that everybody experienced and we just put up with because we liked the fruit so much you know it was a weird sensation in my mouth so it's just anyway it's really changed my whole life uh not being able to eat kiwi and, and pineapple but um so i guess my question is then like for you you talked about the the power dynamic and um and you know going back to the revolution creating these rules so like being in a normative group it's normal to to have these experiences that other people might not be walking in is that different here in america like because when we when we talk about whiteness we're not just talking about the color of our skin 
we're talking about something else entirely. And is that entirely unique to the United States of America versus any other culture where you might experience normative rules? Yeah, right? m- yeah, most that's a really great question. I mean, most people don't understand that part of the part of what's made this country what it is is this racial science thing that happened in the 18th and 19th centuries where people were really curious about the, the racial differences and how they came to be like why is pigmentation different between black, not just black people but or hispanic people or southeast asians uh, versus white people and it's not unique to the United States or to the Western world, but it definitely took off here. And the reason why is because they, because it needed to. And, uh, why do you say, why do you say that? Yeah. 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 Why, why it needed to, and I'll touch on this in just a second. I'll go back to it, but why this needed to happen and why there was this approach towards separating and dividing people based on race was because it was economically necessary to, continue the use of free labor and slavery in the context of slavery when you had the writing of a constitution that was suggestive that all men were created equal you had to justify the black people though you were 99 percent the same as white people you had to justify using this free labor you had to justify it legally Mm -hmm. and to justify it with science and this is how it happened so I think what's really important for people to understand is that we, we are 99.9% the same genetically as humans. This is what we know as a con in, in, in the context of science itself. This is not, you know, this is not under dispute. Um, everyone understands that biologically, physiologically, genetically, we are 99.9% the same. So where do our racial differences come from in this 0.1%? And it doesn't come from the genetics, it comes from a fabricated science. Mm-hmm. And I would recommend anyone go on Google and search this out and just do a random search for racial science and see what you find about people, uh, the history of this country all the way from Thomas Jefferson to the founders of our, to the other founders and, and where um, this concept uh, separating whites um, from blacks really began. And not only whites from blacks, but whites from Asians and um, uh, whites from um, other types of Asian actually. And um, where it, where it, where it took off was this like idea that white people were supreme and based on some scientific, quote unquote, um, like examinations of the skull. And as, you're, as, as a scientist, a pseudoscientist, a faux scientist was looking at the skulls of white people said that they are supreme. He also was looking at the skull structure of African, of, of African descendants saying, oh, these are the most primitive of species. And this actually justified them still being like enslaved for economic benefit. Why that matters is because this thought and this ideology became extremely important and extremely popular during the rise of slavery leading up to the Civil War. And so, yes, when I talk about whiteness, I am not talking about white people. I am talking about the scientific construct that says that white people are supreme. And we built an economy and we built laws and we built uh, social structures based on this ideology, based on this faux science. 
Mm. Yeah. Um, so I guess, so when I hear that, it makes sense to me because even today, right? Like when we're trying to come up with poly policy prescriptions or we're trying to justify our stance on anything, we kind of go to, to facts, right? Like we, we pull up all kinds of figures to, to justify our positions. And what's crazy is people can use the same facts and figures and apply that to whatever policy that they're trying to justify or fight for or push whatever agenda there is. There is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I can't think of a, an example right now that, that people might do that. In, but I, I guess maybe in the gun, gun control debate, you know, we, we throw out all kinds of figures to justify our positions. And sometimes, I, you know, like even in the context of this podcast, like I don't even know when when we're going to bring in facts and figures, because when it comes to understanding some of those relational things, sometimes I think facts just go, we use them to justify our predisposed positions, right? And so, like you mentioned, in back when they're trying to justify the, the labor, uh, free labor enslavement of these people groups, then you kind of have to say, okay, well, someone says, well, what's the difference between us and them? Um, and then you have to go work backward from that point to, to find the evidence to create it, to justify, probably to absolve any, you know, if you have any um, impact on your conscience, right? Like if you have any guilt around that, then you want to justify your behavior to absolve that, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, the white people are human. Black people are human, and the the diabolical thing about whiteness is not white people. The that's just what we call it. If if the if the roles were reversed, I'd call it blackness. But that's not the case, <laughs> um, because we didn't enslave white people. We enslaved black people, black and brown people, and so the way that the system was derived, it was derived to benefit people of lighter skin. Um, and white skin in particular, and that is why we call it what it is. But I, I think that this this point is that what makes a person mean, or um, what makes the like intent so evil, is not that someone is white. It is that they are human, and humans have a proclivity for being diabolical at times, murderous, um, hurting other people with their intentions and then acting on those intentions to the point of destruction. And it just so happened that the people that had the power base at the time to establish structure, to establish these cultures from such a long time ago up until the present, just so happened to be white. And that is the majority. There were just more of y'all mm -hmm. than there were of us. And that's really important to to, to, to say, and I want to reiterate that one more time, is that whiteness, when I talk about whiteness, it is a construct. It is a construct. It is faux. It is not real. It is not, in, it is not indicative saying that white people are inherently evil and are, are, or are the problem per se. But this thing that we built into our understanding of how things work it's so normal for us now, we don't even recognize it. The, the veil is so thin, we, we can't tell the difference between the terminology that we use, like white privilege or, or affirmative action or things like that. All of this comes down to a, to, to a baseline, um, like an idea. It's a construct that says that white people because of the color of your skin are better, but the purpose of that was to have an economic benefit, um, not even against black people, but just pro themselves. Yeah. Um, and so I, th I think I'm 
wrapping my head around this. One thing that white people have a problem doing is separating that, like, because you say it is invisible and because it exists in our normative, like, just every day we are part of that normative group. So what some some white people, that some of the discussions I've had with friends, even leading up to this, one question that keeps getting raised is, okay, so that, that happened back then, and now we've gone through civil rights, and now we have an equality of laws, right? Like, um, all you have access to everything that I do now under the law. And then also, we... We have, you know, white people who came from, you know, immigrated from other white countries, Caucasian countries. I don't even know if that term is correct, but people who immigrated here who had no connection to slavery, right? Like it's just an Australian who's here who happens to be white. So like when we're talking about, again, talking about whiteness, we're not talking about the color of our skin and just any old white person, but this invisible structure that has existed and the effects continue to ripple down from. So what is that pressure that that is exerting on the world today and how does it implicate all of us without implicating us in a way that like makes us feel guilty right but that implicates us in a way that we should just be cognizant of to understand our context in this story does that make sense yeah that makes perfect sense and i think one of the easy test questions for us to ask ourselves are where the disproportionalities existent in our culture today. There's a disproportionality in the criminal justice system among black and brown people. There's a disproportionality among black and brown children in the foster care system. Um, a disproportional um, number of black and brown people who don't have access to health care. And there's a disproportionate amount of people that are in leadership that are in power making rules that are white. And why is that? If we have equal access under the law to everything, then why don't we access? And I think that this is where some of the bias comes in, right? The racial science says that black people are less intelligent, they are savagery. What do you think people were saying about us during Ferguson? What were people saying about us in the 60s when the Watts riots broke out in California? What were people saying um, saying about us um, during these like seemingly random events of police shootings of black people, of black men in particular, is that, hey, something's wrong with them. Something's wrong with them. Something's wrong in the community. How many times have I heard, you know, from, um, from someone that is white, well, if their parents would just have been there then if they had just had a, a white upbringing, then maybe those black kids wouldn't be so bad. Maybe we would, we, we would have changed it. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, looking at black people and saying that, that, that they're not capable of doing what white people can do is the intrinsic bias. It is fueled by the racial science. And it's being fueled. We're not talking about racial science today like racial science. It all comes out in bias. It all comes out in these um, like ideas that um, that welfare reform is like enabling black people to stay on the welfare system. That that is an idea. That's not a that that's not a, a credible argument because you can't find data to support it. <laughs> so and you can't find data to not support it. <laughs> so it's like because it's so innocuous. It's so like dependent upon a person and it's so individualized to a to a person's story. But we've developed these ideas and these biases within ourselves, but they're so rampant in our, in our present culture. But the root of it and the history of it goes all the way back to this idea that black people are less than. I mean, think about it. Hitler did the same thing 
Hitler did the exact same thing when it came to um, talking about the Jewish people and came up with an idea with the philosophy that he was able to communicate very eloquently that the German people were a part of the Aryan race and Jews were not. Jews and anybody else that wasn't them were slum, were just scum. <laughs> they were nothing and, and, and they were not to be protected. They were not to be seen as human. And how much of that is still existent in our world today? How many Nazis or neo-Nazis are existent in the world today? There's a there's a consortium of those people that are still around today because the ideology has lasted. It's outlived the person who came up with it. Mm -hmm. And can we be so confident that, that that isn't true when it comes to racial science? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think, so, like, there's this barrier that we keep butting up against, right? Like, in these conversations that we have, you talked about, you know, if only we, the black community, just raised their children up, right? Then they wouldn't have done these things, right? Like... And I think that that gets to when you hear people talk about white people, and I keep saying white people, and, and I'm talking about that generally, they talk about personal responsibility, right? And how, you know, we have equal access. You, It's really kind of just incumbent on you to, to do those things. Like you talked about, if you just raise your children up, right? Why is it that in understanding kind of white privilege, I think that that's one thing that we kind of have to understand. That's an example of it there's a whole it's a whole complex web and system of everything that just that touches each other right like it's not just one simple problem like of well if you just raise your children up right well there's a lot of broken homes right and we might be able to say that there are broken homes because there's a lot of black men who are locked up right and then there's a whole lot of black men who are locked up because maybe their fathers were locked up and their fathers were locked up because of jim crow laws that were unjust and that's a very simplified and might not even necessarily be 100% accurate but I think it's illustrative of um, of giving kind of a, just an understanding of why it can't just be personal responsibility because all these things are connected and they reverberate back from history um, where white people haven't necessarily had to deal with it white people have parents who have gone to prison right like it's not it's not saying that um that that doesn't occur, that there's not brokenness in white communities, but that brokenness isn't necessarily as connected to a past that basically kneecapped a whole a whole group of people, a whole population of people, and brought them to America. Um, and then kind of this is the lot that they were given. Yeah. I, I hear this all the time and about this personal responsibility argument. And... I don't think anyone's negating that. Everyone has personal responsibility to live their lives the way that they're supposed to, to do it with integrity, to do it with character. Not everyone does that. White, black, green, or yellow. Now, when it comes to issues that are related not only to equality, which is equality of opportunity, but to equity. And I think that we should define what the, what the differences between the two of those are. Equi when we're talking about equality, we are talking about equality of opportunity, probably as devised under the law in this context. Um, when we're talking about equity, we are taking into account the historic systemic struggles of one group of people or several group of people versus another group of people. Meaning that if you have grown up, uh, not only grown up white, but if your history 
your family history is that of being predominantly white and a part of the majority of the social majority, then you automatically have not had to endure certain stressors. Um, yes, your family lineage, people in your family did not endure those stressors which set you up 50 or 60 years from now to not have a generational trauma built into your experience in the present. Now, what, what equity demands is that we then give extra attention, whatever that might mean, to people who might be suffering from that generational oppression um, or lack of generational opportunity and say, how can we get you to the place where you can actually access the equality of opportunity? No one is ever saying that personal responsibility is something that we want to throw away. Everyone is personal responsible, has a, a responsibility for themselves. What I do want to make sure as a as a therapist, a community therapist, from a sociological even even perspective, is to understand that, um, or really to normalize that generational trauma is like trauma in the present, like trauma today, mm-hmm. with generational implications. So what I mean by that is when someone comes into my office and they want counseling for something traumatic that happened to them where they're going through depression and they're not able to function in their life what we call that we normally diagnose that person with a disorder because they're not able to function with order in the context of their lives and we don't say to that person oh you just have to deal with this anymore we used to do that we don't do that anymore now mental health has taken on a whole new like kind of rejuvenative um, kind of approach and and we're welcoming people into the therapeutic spaces now but what we also don't do is we don't say we're not going to help you someone comes in to my office and says i'm struggling with depression i'm going to sit with that person i'm going to understand what the, what their history is i'm going to understand what their bio psychosocial history is literally a comprehensive holistic understanding of the person and then I'm going to develop a treatment plan to get that person to the place where they can access their power where they can access the um, the opportunity that they have to grow in a positive direction as opposed to maybe being self-destructive or self-sabotaging or depressed and suicidal like I, I want that person to access their power their decision-making power to do good for themselves and for people around them funny how we would look at black people and say your generational trauma has nothing to do with me things not only your generational trauma your 50 year old trauma your 10 year old trauma your two year old trauma your your like trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma i don't want to give you anything but i totally expect you to take personal responsibility for everything coming your way not even recognizing that you don't have the capacity to access it mm-hmm. you know you have it mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that it, it is there for you to access it but you don't have the emotional capacity you don't have the capacity given by education um, on how to access the opportunity. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we throw this back in their faces and say, whatever, it's all on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that there's something, a couple of barriers that prevent some people from getting there. One is that you mentioned, how do we elevate the black community to be able to access the equal opportunity? And I think one place where white people who and republicans conservatives one thing because 
Because, right, like we can say the social justice issues are typically wrapped up in a democratic uh, agenda, a liberal agenda, right? And then for Republicans, conservatives, the, like the, there's this tribalistic barrier. So Republicans, conservatives say, well, I don't think that there should be a law or a policy policy prescription to elevate you to that point, right? I, I don't think that that would be the right fix. And... And then also, well, then now I'm agreeing with Democrats. So I think it would be helpful in the context of this discussion <laughs> yeah. to uh, to kind of get away from the policy prescriptions, right? Like, and understand this context in just your personal everyday relationships um, and just understanding how your decision-making um, might impact other people and how other people's decision-making is influenced by their history. And that will allow you greater empathy. That doesn't have to change your policy positions, but it will give you a better position to argue from. Um, that doesn't mean you have to abandon those, like your your beliefs, but I think it, it would be helpful in just your everyday life. So, you know, if you can help elevate black community access to those equal opportunities, maybe that isn't a law. Maybe it's just you mentoring young men in your community, in your neighborhood where you have access to. It doesn't always have to be a law, right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think, um, you know, talk about Democrats versus Republicans. You know, the Democrats, like historically, have exploited the issue of race for political gain. And in the same time, like Republicans do not have a compassionate narrative when it comes to people of color and the history of race in America. And I wish that both of these groups of people would kind of get it together, <laughs> you know, but um, at, at the end of the day, and, and, and mind you, I'm a social conservative, I'm a political conservative. As an African-American social worker, I like to say I have a brain I can think for myself when it comes to those things. And I think, Mark, what you said was, was, was spot on. Um, and I'll say it like this, I am completely tired um, of people looking to government to be the dispensers of equity and equality in this country to people who need it, whether you are black, brown, or white, or green or yellow, it doesn't matter to me. People sometimes just need help. And if you see someone that needs help, why do we turn our back? Why do we look around and say, oh, that, that person is black, um, they have to take personal responsibility for themselves, you know? Um, but. And we're to take a biblical standpoint here. I mean, Jesus said, give to the poor. He goes, you'll always have the poor, but you won't always have me. And he says, give to the poor. You know, um, in Isaiah 1, Isaiah 58, I mean, it's all throughout a biblical text and it's all throughout the New Testament. People love Jesus, but we hate to live like him. And when it comes to the government, the government can never develop enough programs that would be able to understand the nuanced stories of people and their histories. That's not its job. Its job is to give a little bit here and a little bit there. But the people in this country, in our country, or in any country of the world, where we see issues, problems, we are meant, we are called to, it is our human, now given, no one's going to force anyone to do anything because you can't, because if, if I forced you to do it, it wouldn't be genuine, right? But I think it's real. And it's time we had a real um, come to Jesus type of conversation about this, about what it means to be a person of character, what it means to be a person of dignity, who cares about the dignity and the humanity of other people, and to actually see that we have power individually to do something um, with what we see every day. And 
This other question, if you don't see something every day, where are you living? If, if you have, and this goes into this construct of maybe like, not even the construct really, but just the reality that because of, of white people being the majority in this country, you can get away with not seeing someone that is black. You can get away in certain aspects, you know, with not seeing poverty um, or, uh, you know, the people that are struggling in some other kinds of ways, you know, and uh, who are disproportionately black people living in black neighborhoods or in urban centers, you know, where you maybe could avoid it. So, um, but I think it still gets back to this overall question of our, of our, of, of, of the person of the individual person. What power do you have to make a difference in someone else's life? And are you willing to do that? Are you willing to look at the person that is beaten, abused, and abandoned and not abandon them? Actually take time to look, to listen, and then to do something with what you have, with your little resources. You could do a lot. We could all do a lot. And um, maybe this is the anti-whiteness or something, you know, is just everyone being like, and I don't mean anti-white, I mean the anti-deconstruct. Someone will always, someone will come back and say, oh, Brandon was, he's talking about anti-whiteness. And I'm like, nope, I'm not talking about reverse racism. I'm not talking about being anti-white. I'm talking about being anti-a lie. Mm-hmm. Being anti-something that isn't true and actually saying we are 99.9% the same. What are we going to do to reach out to people that don't live where we live? don't have the resources that we have and we can do something with what we have to help them mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's good stuff uh and just as from my own testimony as someone who's kind of walked through this and understanding whiteness not white skin um my understanding of this context hasn't produced in me any kind of white guilt at all right like i just understand who i am and, and i'm proud of who i am but i have no shame or guilt Great. around that right Great. like I, I do have i do mourn the terrible, terrible things that have happened in our history. And, uh, but that at the same time, understanding my context and who I am em- empowers me to take my identity, what, what, where I am, my place and time in history and take inventory of the things where I can push back against that darkness. And, um, you know, and that's kind of a little theological maybe, uh, for, for this podcast, but, um, I think, you know, we're kind of, kind of coming up on time. I feel like we're just like scratching the surface. So we might even have to break this down into two parts, maybe just kind of thinking out loud. This might be whiteness part one. Uh, there could be a part two where we kind of delve into a little bit more of the specifics. But I, I feel like this is a good primer and a good place where we're, we're kind of leaving off. Brandon, if, if you agree with that statement. Yeah, sure. I think that's great. I mean, I don't know how many white people want to keep talking about whiteness, but I'm all in for it. You know, if you guys want to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um in the meantime, I think that folks can access some other resources that we've been talking about. Namely, there is a film, sort of a docu-film by the playwright James Baldwin, who's an African-American man who was very close to Martin Luther King Jr. and to other civil rights leaders. And the uh, film that you can get for free to watch for free on Amazon Prime is called I Am Not Your Negro. Um, so I would definitely encourage people to check that out and watch it several times in order to get all of the pieces of it. It's very creative. It's wonderfully done. I would also recommend this podcast called Scene on Radio, S-C-E-N-E on Radio. And it breaks down a little bit more the context of racial science and the history of race in America. Very academic, has some wonderful uh, people who've studied this and who are teaching it currently in the Ivy League and beyond. So 
you should definitely take that out. And there are so many other resources. What else do we have? Yeah. Mark, that we think people should do? Uh, well, one is I've, I visited the African-American Museum here in D.C. Uh, a few weeks ago. And holy cow, that just was like, man, um, I couldn't even get through all of it. It was hard to absorb. I was I was walking through exhibits and I was like, man, I just need to sit and rest. And then lo and behold, really well done, really well put together. There was a place for you to sit and reflect uh, just at the right time when you needed it. And so I would love to even, I wish there was, and maybe this exists, but just everything that exists in that museum, I just wish you could put in a textbook uh, because there's so much there to consume and absorb. Um, and also every each podcast that we talked about leaving you with a call to action. I think for this week, one good exercise that we would leave you with is to kind of just think about when is the last time you thought about how history has influenced your life? When is the last time you thought about the negative heritage of your history uh, and kind of really dig into your past and find out how your ancestors' decisions deposited you into this place and time? And so maybe a good place to start with is just your immediate family genealogy. You know, if you don't understand the story of how your parents met or where they came or from or where they grew up and just begin working your way backwards because you every decision like you, you didn't control where you were born or when you were born. Right. Um, and so that's just something that happened by happenstance. And and so really dig into that to understand a little bit more about the, the influences, the invisible power dynamics that are exerting pressure on on our present day yeah that's great so and don't be afraid we tell good and terrible stories around here and every family has some great things and every family has some not so great things so um you know we can't be picky and choosy about our legacy right we yeah. can't be picky and choosy about our family story about our family history so anyway be encouraged everybody i think <laughs> as you're going through all of those things and all those resources um feel encouraged that this is a conversation that has been going on for longer than what we've been having and um you know how we're interjecting in the conversation now is is um in response to what we feel like is urgent and to and you'll hear us say this a lot to demonstrate uh, to really demonstrate you know what it means as an experiment for us how to walk through this relationally and um i think we're doing all right yeah yeah so far so far so thanks for listening to us this week if you have anything that you want to contribute to the discussion or even if you just want to share your thoughts uh, you know if you've uh, thought through your that call to action and, and uh, you want to share a little bit more about your history we'd love to hear it you can email us uh, information is on the website um, and of course next week we hope you tune in when we're going to be talking about a really kind of charged topic I even hate to say what the title of it is because I don't want that to come out of my mouth. But Brandon, if you're comfortable. I'll say it. We're going to talk about what it means for anger to reside in the black person. <laughs> and we didn't call it, uh, or we do call it, uh, sort of black anger, if you could put those in quotation marks. So uh, in summary, we're going to unpack uh, in the psyche and the psychology of black people in America why we might be a little frustrated yeah. with what's going on and why we might be so compelled um, at times to um, uh, property destruction <laughs> and um, and uh, and then also just frustration that we have to deal with on a daily basis with how the world is going and how we're and how we've been treated and the fallout over hundreds of years now yeah so and we're gonna have our first guest who's gonna join us and so uh, that'll be fun and we hope that you tune in for that so thank you for tuning in this week and we look forward to to next time 
Thanks for tuning in to Behind the Scene. Just a quick reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are strictly that of Brandon's and mine and do not reflect that of our employer. Uh, and then second, if you enjoyed this content at all, we'd love it if you could like it and subscribe. And then, of course, if you think you had know anyone who would benefit from this content or would like to engage with it, please share it with them as well. And we will see you next time.